following message is a presentation of Valley Metro Church, a community of believers dedicated to knowing God and making Him known. I just wanted to say a little commentary on everything Brian just said. Um, virtually none of that was true, just so you know. Uh, but I noticed during the worship today that uh, she prayed for pain in the church. And, and I kind of noticed this pattern, like that happens every time that I'm about to teach. So I, you, know, you can't say that you weren't warned. Uh, we're going to be in 2 Peter chapter 1, 2 Peter chapter 1. I read a story about a pastor who, do you mind? This is, can I, can I shine that on you? No. Um, but uh, it's a great invention, whatever that is. But um, anyway, I, I read this story about a pastor who um, liked to pay surprise visits on the people from his congregation. And uh, of course, Brian doesn't do this. Just wanted to clear that up in case uh, anybody here... But anyway, uh, this guy would go and, and make a surprise visit. And, uh, and one evening, he's visiting a couple who had attended his church for a few months, a newlywed couple, and he knocks at the door, and uh, he, can, he can see lights on and people moving around. Uh, he can hear people moving around. He can hear voices, but no one answers the door. And so he knocks again, and, uh, and still he's hearing the voices and hearing people moving around, but still nobody answers the door. So he takes out his business card. He writes on it, Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. A few days later, he gets the card back in the mail. The couple had written on the card, Genesis 3.10. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm going to put this over here. Um, that has absolutely nothing to do with our message today. Uh, we're in Second Peter uh, chapter 1. Just a quick explanation. I'm going to be reading from the Holman Bible. As you may know, there are Bible versions that are word-for-word -word translations of the original text, and there are Bible ver versions that are paraphrases, uh, thought by thought from the original text. The Holman tries to kind of do both. Uh, in my experience, it's probably 60% or so of the it's virtually the New King James, word for word, and the rest is uh, some interesting paraphrases, kind of opens a meaning. So 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Simeon Peter, or Simon Peter, a slave and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal privilege with ours through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you through the knowledge of God, and our Lord, and Jesus our Lord. For his divine power has given us everything that required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. By these he has given us very great and precious promises, so that through them you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desires." For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness, goodness with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, endurance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they will keep you from being useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
The person who lacks these things is blind and short-sighted and has forgotten the cleansing from his past sins. Therefore, brothers, make every effort to confirm your calling and election, because if you do these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, entry into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be richly supplied to you. Let's pray as the Lord's blessing. Father, we thank you for your word. It is, in fact, a, a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. Uh, Your word never returns void, but always accomplishes the purpose for which it was sent. We pray you do that today in each and every heart here. We pray that you'd anoint the lips of our teacher today. And Lord, this would be a message from you to us. And Lord, we would take this and embrace it. Our, our, Our hearts would be open to each and everything you want to do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The New Testament epistle writers typically began their letters by saying, here's who's writing this, and here's who I'm writing it to. Peter does that, and Peter uses, strangely maybe, two names to refer to himself. He calls himself Simon Peter. Simon, of course, the name, uh, his pre-conversion name, the name he was given at birth. Uh, Peter, the name that Jesus gave him when he came to faith. Why does he use both names? Perhaps to make a point that In us, just as in Peter, uh, he has two natures, we have two natures. Uh, We we still have that fallen, sinful nature we were born with, but now we have a new nature, which we receive through faith in Christ. Uh, But the Scripture says those natures still war with each other. And of course, the goal of your life and my life is that the Spirit would get the upper hand, not the flesh. But a good reminder from Peter that we've still got those two natures, That sinful nature is up to no good, and we are to rule over it. Now, we don't uh, beat ourselves up for the, of course, the failures of the past that Jesus has has forgiven and forgotten, but neither do we forget. We're not ignorant of the fact that we've got this nature still desiring to trip us up. Now, Peter then tells us he's the slave of Christ, doulos in the Greek. Now, a slave in the first century was the absolute property of their owner. They had really nothing of their own. Even their time wasn't their own. They had no holidays. Uh, They were to serve their master 24-7. And I think the application for us as Christians is sometimes we can can tend to compartmentalize our faith. We say, well, this part of my thoughts belongs to me, or this part of my time belongs to me. But no, we're the doulos of Christ, like Peter. We're We're his slave And everything that we are and everything that we have belongs to him. And it's not a bad idea, if you haven't done this already, to pray a prayer consecrating your entire being to Christ, right? Our mind, our thoughts, our eyes, what we look at, our ears, what we're going to listen to, our mouth, what we might speak, our hands, what we do, our feet, where we go. God will honor that if we consecrate that to him. God will, will make that a reality. So Peter's a slave. He's also an apostle, meaning God's messenger. Peter then says to us that he's writing this letter to believers, and he says something which I find a little startling. He says that we have this faith of equal privilege. In other words, we look at somebody like an apostle, like Peter, and we go, wow, he's way up the scale, up the totem pole for maybe where you or I might be. But Peter says, no, we have a faith of equal privilege. When I was a new believer, I got in the habit of watching this evangelist on television, 
And I won't mention his name, but he had really big hair and he used to ride around in really big limousines. And so I'm going to call him Reverend Big Stuff. But anyway, anyway I, somehow I got a piece of mail from Big Stuff one day and it was a prayer card. And it said, if you will write down your prayer need, Big Stuff himself will pray for you. I thought, well, this is a pretty good deal. He's pretty high up in the kingdom, you know. And the other side of the card was an appeal for funds. I don't remember exactly, but it was gas for Big Stuff's limousines or something. You know, there was some need that he had. And, and I remember I had something going on in my life at the time, and I, I thought, I really need prayer. I really need someone high in the kingdom to pray for me. I better send this in, and I better put some cash with it to make sure that Big Stuff himself prays. 100% wrong, Peter would say. You have a faith of equal privilege. You might have been a Christian 10 months or 10 minutes. You have equal access to God, just as someone like the Apostle Peter, someone great in the faith. No, we have equal access. God doesn't play favorites. In fact, you are his favorite. So you can come to him boldly, as the Scripture says, with whatever your need is, whatever your desire is, and he uh, will hear you and will attend to that. Now, Peter reminds us that Jesus is the source of all we need. He says that uh, from him we get grace and peace. And, of course, you'll never experience the peace of God until you've uh, uh, bowed to him and received his grace. And, and of course, uh, Peter also says that Jesus has everything we need for life and godliness. Everything is in Jesus. I think the longer you walk with him, the more you realize that he's the solution to really everything, right? And, and that, you know, we can do nothing and... and, and uh, and so we really come to him more and more realize that he's the source of all things. So uh, then we see Peter exhort us to add seven virtues to our faith. The first one is goodness. And the meaning of the word there is really moral excellence. And I would suggest to you that people see, lots of people see our moral choices, don't they? Our entertainment choices, our decisions about things like honesty and so forth. Uh, lots of people see those moral choices. Our spouse sees those things. Our children see those things. Friends, uh, co-workers, and so forth. And, and, and those things can either draw people to Christ or they can actually push people away from Christ. Those moral choices are important. Now next, uh, Peter tells us the next verse you'd add to our faith is knowledge. Knowledge. I was praying one day. I said, Lord, bless my wife. Here's what the Lord said. He said, you want to bless your wife? Get up and go make the bed. Yeah, God's practical, isn't he? I heard an amen, okay. And I think it came from the pastor's wife. But anyway, um, not sure. Anyway, uh, 1 Peter 3, 7 uh, says, Husbands, dwell with your wife with understanding or knowledge. It's the same, same word that we just uh, read in our text here. And the point is that as we live with our spouse, we learn a lot about them, right? We learn what's important to them. And that's really the, the key here. I, I learned that it's important to my wife that I make the bed every morning, which, I, which I've done ever since then, except when she's out of town. I don't, you know, I figured, you know, but now that she knows that, I'll probably be in trouble. But um, the, point, the point that Peter's making when he talks about adding knowledge to your faith, the point he's making is that as you walk with Jesus, you get knowledge about him. You learn about him. You learn what's important to him. You want to do those things, just as you would in your marriage. You do those things that please your spouse. You're going to do those things that, that please Jesus. Next virtue, self-control. In the Greek, literally getting a grip on yourself, talking about controlling your passions. You know, we don't need to respond to every weird impulse we might have. 
Next, Peter talks about endurance. And the idea of this endurance that he talks about is that as I suffer, I keep my eye on the benefit. I keep my eye on the outcome. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, thinking nothing of the shame. Jesus had his, as he suffered, he had his eye on the, on the benefit, on the outcome. That's what we want to do as we suffer. We will suffer in this life. And I know there's people in this room that are suffering greatly right now. But the point is that whatever that suffering might be, Jesus promises to use it for our good. And, and God uses these things in part to conform us to the image and likeness of his son. So there's always benefit in the suffering. We want to keep our eye on that. Next, godliness. We can kind of sum this up rather simply. Just say a right relationship with God and people. Next one, brotherly affection. Philo, Adelphia in the Greek. It's where we get our word Philadelphia, brotherly love. And the idea of this one is not neglecting the needs of men, in our service to God. Don't bother me with your problems. Can't you see I'm praying? That would be the opposite of this. We serve God by serving people. We never want to feel like it's an interruption because somebody has a problem or a need. And you look at Jesus, there are a lot of interruptions. Remember the time when Jesus had just heard that his cousin John the Baptist was beheaded? He went off to be by himself. Undoubtedly, some grieving going on. The crowds followed him. What did he do? He ministered to the people. He interrupted what was important to him in order to meet the needs of others. That's what we want to do. Finally, love, agape in the Greek. The idea here is God's unconditional love extended to all people. Difference between phileo, the root word of this brotherly affection, and agape, the the word for God's love. The difference is phileo, sometimes thought of as friendship or brotherly affection, that involves reciprocity. You're nice to me, I'll be nice to you. You scratch my back, I'll pick your pocket. I mean, kind of the idea is, it's payback, right? Whatever you give me, I'm giving you back the same. That's the idea of of, uh, phileo. But agape love is unconditional. You burn down my teepee, I love you, hotwire my car, you're my best friend. In other words, whatever you do, I'm going to love you and serve you, no matter what what that might be. Now catch this, because if your marriage or any other relationship is based on this phileo love, this reciprocity, you do your part, I'll do my part, it's doomed to failure. Why? Because sooner or later, your spouse, your boss, your friend, your pastor, anybody, sooner or later, what's going to happen? They're going to disappoint you. What happens then? Well, they didn't do their part, so they're not going to do my part. I mean, the whole thing melts down. There's no That goes nowhere. It's such a temporary thing. It's only a matter of time until that person blows it. And then where are you then? You're nowhere, right? So, uh, you know, uh, our, our, our earthly relationships, our marriage relationship, all that must be based upon God's agape, unconditional love. You know, and, and you will see relationships transformed. You'll see marriages transformed, resurrected from the dead when people begin to love the other one without conditions put on that love. Can you, can you picture Jesus saying, you know, Steve, um, when I went to the cross, I, I never imagined you'd do that yucky thing you just did, and uh, I'm just disgusted, I'm fed up, I'm out of here. You picture Jesus saying that to you or to me? No, impossible, because Jesus' love has no conditions. 
He went to the cross for you because he loves you. He saved you because he loves you. He's not changing his mind. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's not a, he's not a man that he would change his mind. The Old Testament scriptures tell us his love's unconditional. So all of our earth, earthly relationships must be based on this agape, this unconditional love. And even if one person in a marriage makes a decision that uh, they're going to unconditionally love the other person and serve them no matter what happens, even that will transform. One person will transform the marriage relationship. Somebody said amen. I love that. A very sick husband was taken to the doctor by his wife, and uh, the doctor examined the man, then asked the man to go sit in the waiting room while he talked to the wife. And the doctor said to the wife, your husband is very, very ill, and he might not make it. But uh, he said, I have a plan, and if you're willing to do these things, I think there's an excellent chance that, that he could recover. And so he begins to tell the wife the things that, that, that she has to do to help the husband. And the first thing he said is, it's very important your husband be able to rest comfortably. So if he's sitting on the couch, I want you to like, put a pillow behind his back, and I want you to take off his shoes and, and put a pillow under his feet you know, so that he could be comfortable. And it's very, very important that he never have any stress. Never say anything to him that might cause stress. You must speak to him in a calm, quiet voice all the time, right? And, and the final thing he said is that you need to smother him with affection. Night and day, just give him lots and lots of affection. He said, if you're willing to do these things, there's an excellent chance that your husband can recover. So she goes back to the waiting room. The husband says, you know, honey, what did the doctor say? And she said, well, he said you're going to die. That's not agape love, is it? So these seven virtues Peter talks about, the only way that we're going to gain those virtues is to be intentional about it. Now something Jesus said applies here. Jesus said the flesh profits nothing. In other words, any self-reformation that you would attempt that's based upon your power or your strength sooner or later, will fail. Because why? Sooner or later, our strength, our power, is going to give out. It's going to fail. It's gonna, we're going to encounter something too great for us. But whose power and strength will never fail? Well, God's, right? So the, the recipe for change in the Christian life is not, I'll try harder. No, it's I'm coming to God, and I'm giving him, I, I'm telling him that my desire is to line up with his desire. Now, you see, Peter is writing this on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. God wants us to have these seven attributes. So if you come to God and go, I want to do things this way, what's going to happen? God is going to empower that. He has all the power that's needed. He can make this happen. And so really the Christian life, in the end, it's about making decisions. It's about you lining up with God's will, me lining up with God's will, and then letting God, through his power, uh, accomplish the work. But if you're going to live this Christian life saying, I blew it by next time, just going to be stronger. And, you know, I don't know about your life. It's, that's never worked in my life. And I think the scripture would say that if you think you're strong, you're going to fall. I mean, all those, those scriptures. So the way to change in the Christian life is that we let the Lord know what it is we want and we watch him empower it. Now, Ephesians 4 gives us a formula. You don't need to turn there, but jot it if you're interested in looking at that later. But it gives the Lord's formula for making change in our life. And what you'll see in Ephesians 4 is there's two things you must do to affect change in your life. First, you must put off 
or stop doing that bad thing you don't want to do. Second, you must, in its place, put on or start doing uh, an, a, a better thing in its place. So if you want these seven Christian virtues in your life, I suggest praying every morning, but not just praying for the thing that you, um, uh, th- that you want, but also pray for that bad thing that you want removed from your life. I'm talking about your mother-in-law or anything like that, but as the case may be. But, um, but the sin you don't want in your life, you, you want to be praying, uh, Lord, I not only don't want to do that, but then the, you're going to pray for the corresponding virtue that you want added in its place. Now, before I got out of bed every morning, I pray for a whole bunch of things, but one of them is six or seven things that I want to see change in me. And, and for, as an example would be being critical of people. It's easy for me to do. I don't want to do that. And so I pray that I wouldn't do that in its place. I'd be affirming. I'd be encouraging. I'd be supporting people, right? So that's kind of how this works. You think about what's the opposite of that? What's the attribute? What's the thing I'm doing? Uh, And and that's a good recipe. So try this. Try asking the Lord to to make these seven things a reality in your life. Now, if you need motivation to pursue these changes, Peter uh, says, notice what he says in verse 8. He says, these virtues will keep us from being useless. In a lot of our Bibles, that'll say barren. And barren means you have no offspring. And really, the the promise that Peter makes here is if you make these seven virtues yours, you're going to have spiritual offspring. People are going to be coming to Christ through your life. On the other hand, Peter says, if you lack these virtues, you're short-sighted or blind. Uh, kind of picture this. Let's say you're, you're texting on the freeway. Really bad idea you know, while you're driving. But let's say you're, you're driving and texting on the freeway. So here's what happens. You're going to be very focused on your device so because of that, you're going to be short-sighted. You're not getting the big picture of what's going on. You're focused on your phone or whatever. And so then you're missing what's really more important, like the fact that you're about to have a wreck, right? You're not seeing that because you're focused up here. And so here's the point. You're spiritually short-sighted if your focus is on the things of the flesh and the world, the here and now. And so you're so focused on that, you're not seeing the big picture. You're not seeing the things of heaven, the things of eternity, the things that God wants to do because you're, you're distracted, you're preoccupied. You're, in essence, Peter says, spiritually blind. Now for the really fun stuff, the calling and the election of God. Let's listen. I'm going to read to you what Pastor E.L. Davis said about his call to the ministry. He says, I received my call to the ministry in 1983. While praying one night around 2 a.m., I heard the Lord say, get up and go sit on your porch outside. As I sat down, the Lord said to me, look up. And when I looked up, all I could see was clouds. I sat there for several minutes, started to get up to go back in the house. The Lord said, sit back down and look again. I looked up, an opening appeared in the clouds, and I saw three stars in the shape of a triangle. And I heard the Lord say, I am the bright morning star, and I've called you to preach my gospel and preach my word. I said, Lord, I don't know what to say to anybody. He said, preach my word, my Bible. I went to bed that night bewildered by the whole thing. The next morning, as I took my little girl off to school, I kept thinking the whole thing had to be a dream. By the end of the day, I had convinced myself that the events of the previous night had never happened. My little girl came home from school saying, Daddy, I made you a picture at school. As I looked at the picture, the hair stood up on the back of my uh, neck. Uh, In the picture, the entire sky was black, except for an opening in the middle with three little stars and then a house with a porch 
out front. And he says, I, I heard the Lord say, see, I have called you. Um, now, the, the word Peter uses in our passage for calling is the Greek word klesis. And I came to this passage thinking, great, the calling of God, calling us to the ministry, calling us to some occupation or vocation. How exciting. I love that stuff. And I get into this and I start studying it and I find out that this passage is not about that at all. It's really about the call of Jesus to salvation. In fact, the entire New Testament, there's like one time that that word is used to describe uh, calling to a particular vocation or, or ministry. But this passage, all the commentators, all the word study, I mean, believe me, I tried. I really wanted this to be about that. But the Lord rebuked me and goes, no, that's not what this is about. You've got to teach what this passage is about. And so this passage is really not about that per se. We're going to touch on that a little bit. But this passage is about Jesus calling us into relationship with himself, calling us to salvation. And I would imagine most of us have probably not experienced that kind of a front porch calling like we saw this Pastor Davis, uh, maybe, but I would guess most of us haven't. Um, And if not, if you haven't had that kind of front porch experience where the the clouds part and God speaks or whatever, then here's what applies to you. That would be Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, whatever your hand finds to do, do it enthusiastically as something done for the Lord and not for men. In other words, unless God has specifically called you to a particular ministry or to a particular occupation, then you're free in Christ. Whatever your hand finds to do, whatever you do, do it with all of your heart. Do it for the Lord. And here's the point. You're not a second-class Christian because you're not in full-time ministry. You're not spiritual navel lint because you're not a pastor or worship leader or whatever, right? Which I don't know about you, but, it, you know, at times I've kind of felt that I'm not a pastor anymore. You know, he makes this big thing about I'm a pastor. I'm really like a defrocked priest, you know, but, but enough about me. Uh, but, you know, the idea is that y- you can feel that way, right? Like, what I do every day, it doesn't seem that important, the total kingdom picture. And we're going to talk a little later about a man and kind of what his life was all about. But I would suggest to you that it's the same thing that Peter talked about early in our text, that we all have equal privilege before God, right? Equal honor and privilege. There's not a higher or lower occupation in the kingdom of God. And it might seem like a pastor is a more important calling. It certainly is a, is a very critical calling, but it ain't more important than the usher or the person that's in the business world or the person that's working fast food. It's, this is not the way God does things, right? There's such an equality in the kingdom of God. And, and you might be blessed to have more people in your sphere of influence and greater impact for God. Uh, hallelujah, if that's the case. But not everybody does. And not everybody has economic means that they can do things that other people... Whatever that is, we're equal in the kingdom of God. So we never want to feel inferior to somebody else in our calling. But here's what Peter um, uh, uh, says here. He says, make your calling and election sure... Uh, We talked about the calling. I'm just going to read you something about the election of God. This is from John Bunyan, 17th century Puritan uh, preacher and writer about the, um, about the, uh, what's our subject here? Election. (laughs) Here we are, the election of God. So here's what, um, 
what Bunyan writes here. He says, election is as eternal as God is, without variableness or shadow of change, and thus is called an eternal purpose, and it must stand. It is absolute and unconditional. No works were foreseen in us that were the cause of God's choosing us, and no sin in us shall frustrate or make election void. By the act of election, we are wrapped and covered in Christ. He has chosen us in Him, not in ourselves, not in our virtues, no, not for or because of anything but His own will. Election is the permanent resolution of God to glorify His mercy on the vessels of mercy He foreordained in the glory. By the act of electing love, it is concluded that all things whatsoever shall work together for the good to those called according to the eternal purpose of God. It secures them from the danger of sin and the malice of Satan. The covenant is sealed by the blood of our advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are safe and sound before the Father's face. By God's choice, purpose, and decree, the elect have been allotted in Christ a sufficiency of grace to bring them through all difficulties to glory. Just uh, security, being in God. God is working out His eternal purpose in us, and uh, it's exciting stuff. Um, So let's talk about the subject of calling an election versus man's free will. Uh, God has ordained before the foundation of the earth that some would be called and, and the elect and would spend eternity in heaven enjoying him forever, while others would, would not receive him and would spend eternity in torment. That seems to us, on the face of it, hideous and unfair. But I want to suggest that an illustration that might help us kind of put this in context. I'm going to tell you about our home telephone, and you're going to think, what does that have to do with anything? But bear with me here. Um, we have a landline at home with an answering machine attached to it. We never, ever answer that phone. I'm not even sure why we have it. We rarely even listen to the messages. You know? Uh, but here's the point. Anybody who knows us calls the cell. And so by definition, the people that are calling on the landline are um, solicitors, pranksters, or Pastor Brian. I mean, this is pretty much... No, just, just kidding. But anyway, um, but here's the point. Our friends know that we don't answer the landline so they don't call it. In the same way, God knows who will not answer his call, and he doesn't call them. He doesn't waste a call on them, but there's a, there's, a, there's a reason he doesn't that has to do with his mercy. The scripture says, to whom much is given, much is required. Now, that person that's going to live in rebellion to Christ and and refuse to bow the knee to him, if God were to add on top of that his calling, that person is then accountable for that much more, and their judgment is going to be that much greater. In his mercy, he doesn't extend the call that the person he knows will not, no way, Jose, accept it, right? That's God's mercy. So, Man absolutely has a free will. He absolutely can accept or reject Christ, and God will honor either choice. Now, if, if I face two roads, and one's a good road, and one's a bad road, and Steve's about to go down the bad road, and God goes, ah, 
that gets me over on the good road. I don't have free will anymore, do I? If he overrules my bad choices, there is no free will. So for free will to exist, God has to allow people to make the wrong choice. I mean, that you know, granted, he, he's certainly able to work circumstances and, and prevent us from certain things that, that might, we might have done if we'd had the opportunity. But in terms of this choice of, of choosing him or rejecting him, uh, he absolutely, we have a free choice. But he actually uh, can uh, overrule that. So I personally see this um, election and free will, I see it as two sides of the same coin. God chooses those he knows will choose him, and, but they still have a choice. So personally, I don't see, I don't have a big problem with it because it looks to me like it's, we're just looking at it from different sides. From God's side, man absolutely has the opportunity. Uh, John six thirty seven. Jesus said, the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. John three sixteen. Jesus said, everyone who believes in me will not perish, but have everlasting life. The scripture's clear. There's many more scriptures like that, but the idea is that anyone, everyone who chooses Christ will be forgiven, will spend eternity in heaven. That's God's absolute promise, and so uh, we, we can rest in that. So Peter says something here. He says, if we make the calling and election sure, we will never stumble. We'll never stumble. Now, my wife and I like to take uh, walks around the neighborhood, and uh, we very often go down this street that's very, very steep. And it occurs to me as I go down this street that if you were to stumble on this street, you'd get seriously hurt. You could be out of commission for a while. And that's the way it is in the kingdom of God. There's certain stumbles that, w- that, might, that might happen in our Christian life that could really take you off the path and really put you out of commission for uh, a long uh, a long, long time. And, and a pastor, I'm sure Brian would bear witness, uh, you quickly learn that there's just a few things that are stumbling lots of people. And I, personally, I don't think there's 10 things. There might be three. And 1 Corinthians 10, 13 talks about this. It says there's just a few areas that people are, everybody is, is stumbling. And adultery would be one of those, for example. Um, but Considering there's just this short list of things that could really wipe you out, wouldn't it be smart to spend a little time thinking in advance about those things? Uh, I'm going to give you an example. We're talking about adultery, but consider Joseph, the son of Jacob. You know the story. He's sold into slavery down in Egypt, ends up working for this guy Potiphar, and he does a fantastic job because the Scripture said that God is with him and blesses everything that he touches, and so he does a great job with the house, and then I don't know if it's a business or what, but everything, Potiphar gives him more and more authority and control, so he's really running everything in the guy's life, and uh, then one day he's on a business trip, and Mrs. Potiphar starts going after Joseph and says, lie with me, you know, and uh, so, uh, and, and we see in what Joseph says to her, we see that he has thought in advance about this temptation and what, would do, what he would do if it came his way. Because listen to what he says. I'm going to give you the paraphrase of it. He says, in effect, your husband has been really good to me. How could I do this against him? But not only that, how could I sin against my God? He's thought this through, and uh, Joseph avoided the stumble because he thought in advance about what would happen if he did uh, commit that sin. And I think you and I would be wise to do that same thing. And we're going to just take adultery as an example, just for a minute. But 
Uh, using that as an example, a great thing to think about is, okay, what would happen if you or I committed that sin? What would happen in our relationship with our spouse? What would happen in our relationship with our children? Um, what, would we be effective in any way, shape, or form in serving uh, Jesus? I mean, uh, can you imagine something like that's just happened in your life, and, uh, and you're trying to tell somebody about Jesus, and you need to be saved, and they're going, well, look at your life. It's a stinking mess. You know, I want to be like that. You know, I mean, it's like uh, we, we, could, we could be rendered completely ineffective. And our whole life could melt down in an instant. So I think those kinds of things, it's a rather short list. Take some time with the Lord. Just go, what would happen if, right? And it's not because we're being bizarre or weird. It's because we're trying to prevent ever stumbling in a way that puts us out of commission for a long time. And then all the collateral damage to all these people we love, right? And so, so I don't think it's weird. I think it's smart. And we look at a guy like Joseph, a great man of faith. I, I would say from what I see him saying, Here's the man that thought about things like that in advance. So I don't think it's weird. I think it's wise. Okay, so moving on. Peter it makes us a huge promise here. He says, making this calling and election sure. And by the way, there's a, uh, in the text, there's the idea that uh, there's really two ideas when it talks about making the calling and election sure or confirming it. There's really two main ideas there. One is to really be sure about it. To really be sure you're saved. If you're not saved, get saved, right? If you're not sure, you're probably not, get saved. Bow the knee to Christ, right? That, that's the first thing. But then if you are saved, if you have made that profession of faith, trust in Christ. It's like uh, Bunyan just talked about. Trust in him to bring you through to the end, right? You're not going to do it in your own power and strength. He's going to bring you through, right? And so we, we're, we're going to trust in him. We're going to obey him. We're going to enjoy him. We're going to walk with him. But then the second idea, which is uh, hinted at in the original language that we don't get in the English, is when we say make the calling and election sure or confirm it, the idea is make it the foundation for everything you do in your life, right? And so then uh, we don't see the calling as a straitjacket, you know, that that limits us in some way. No, it's more of a, a springboard that propels us. It's like Augustine said, you know, Love God and do whatever you want. In other words, it's, it's freeing, right? When you have the calling and election of God as the foundation for your life and all that, that is underneath that in terms of the love of God and the mercy of God that, that brought about this calling and election, you're secure. And if you could stand on that security, then you're going to do your best in whatever field that you're doing because you know that you stand secure. Your feet, your, your feet stand strong. So, so we're going to talk about... Um, uh, something Peter says in our text. He says, making this calling and election sure, will uh, you'll never stumble. It's going to prevent a stumble. Now, how does that work exactly? Well, let's think about what motivates a stumble. We stumble into sin because of some, we feel like something's missing in our life or some unmet need or desire or something. And in some twisted attempt to satisfy that, we stumble into sin. But Peter suggests that when we keep the calling and election front and center, uh, in our consciousness, if we understand this love and grace of Christ that brought this about, um, we're going to find our satisfaction in Him. We're going to find our fulfillment in Him, and they'll be less susceptible to these other uh, desires or cravings that would otherwise perhaps put us in danger of a stumble. Okay, so the final verse in our passage, uh, Peter writes, For in this way... Entry into the eternal kingdom 
of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be richly supplied to you. Peter's talking about the reception we will receive upon arriving in heaven. And there's something, he says that reception is going to be rich or abundant, our, our, our versions say. But there's something in the Greek here that we don't get in the English. And it's a picture of an Olympic champion. They just aced their event. They just won the gold. And they're coming back to their hometown. These people have all been rooting for them and know them and, or, or him or whatever it is. And so, so he, they come back to their hometown to this hero's welcome, to this great reception. And, and that's the picture we have of this person who makes the calling and election sure upon their arrival in heaven, there's this huge reception. Now, we know scripturally that we're going to meet the Lord face to face. He's going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Share your master's joy. We know that. But there's the idea here that there's a crowd of people also present welcoming you. And the question is, who are those people? Are these strangers? Maybe. But back in verse 8, Peter says that if we, in effect, if we live like Jesus and love like Jesus, that we're not going to be barren. In other words, uh, we're going to have spiritual offspring. They're going to be souls won uh, through our life. And so, um, so that crowd of people that gives you that hero's welcome into heaven, maybe those are people who are saved through your life. Now, in the New Living Translation, it says, uh, it talks about this welcome. It says, the gates of heaven are open wide. Why do they need to be open wide? Maybe because a lot of people are coming with you. I don't know, but it's it's fascinating thought. Okay. Now, a real preacher would give you the title of the message at the beginning, but since I'm just a wannabe, I, I get to give it at the end. Here's our title, Surviving or Thriving. Surviving or Thriving. Here's a picture of the Christian who's just surviving. Well, I'm saved. I prayed the prayer. I did the deal. Just going to kind of wait for my time, and then I go to heaven. I'm going to enjoy heaven. That's the picture of the person that's kind of surviving, right? They, they felt like they're in the kingdom, but that's about as far as it goes. Um, but in our passage this morning, Peter is exhorting us to move beyond that simply surviving, and he's showing us instead that we can have that thriving Christian life, that that is really the way this Christian life is supposed to be, uh, where we're excited and, and we're fulfilled and we're doing things that are, that are meaningful. The thriving Christian life, of co- Christian life, of course, starts with faith in Christ. Uh, no more alibis, no more excuses. Uh, I admit that, that I've sinned, I've done, I've done wrong things, and I'm the trigger man. I'm not trying to blame anybody else. It's, it's my fault, uh, these things that I've done. And uh, Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, take over. Be the new CEO of my life. Uh, and, and if you haven't done that already, we're going to give an, give an opportunity in a minute to do that, to make that decision. Um, but this, this thriving Christian life starts with uh, that surrender to Christ, but doesn't end there. And, and we begin to thrive. We begin to uh, really experience this, the real, uh, exciting, meaningful Christian life when we lay hold of these seven virtues that, that Peter describes here. But I'm going to put these another way. I'm going to say that these, with these seven virtues, we begin to think, speak, act, and even smell like Jesus. I mean, that's the whole idea of these seven things. If you do these things, your, your life's going to look more and more uh, like Jesus. So this thriving Christian life that makes Jesus the foundation for everything we do Uh, And that would mean our identity, 
our activities, our goals, our plans, our dreams, all of that should flow from the calling and election of Christ. That's really the point being made here. Now, two weeks ago, Saturday, um, well, I guess I should tell you why, but I was stuck in this hotel room down in San Diego, and it was really my own choice. Um, you know, I, the last time we were down in San Diego, we were going to do Legoland, and there was some misunderstanding, and, and my wife didn't have her phone that day, and uh, anyway, so she kind of took off and left me, and I have abandonment issues anyway, you know, so I, I'm there in Legoland, and you know, I'm not, no, oh, this is SeaWorld, I'm sorry, and there's, there's only like 90,000 people there, and you know, lost child, they have a place you go, but you know, lost adult, what, what are you supposed to do, and so I'm there, you know, baking in the sun for hours, feeling abandoned, and anyway, so um, I, had the, I had a choice uh, two weeks ago, either going to SeaWorld or staying in the hotel. And just the memories, you know, were just so haunting. I, anyway, I stayed in the hotel. So I'm, I'm in the hotel all day, and uh, I, I've just got my Bible, and I've got a biography. And it's a biography of a Christian uh, businessman. And, and this man, uh, he came to the Lord in his teens. And when he was 20, he started this business, but it was failing miserably. Everything's going wrong. He's down to his last few dollars, and he's basically going to get in his car and drive back to his parents' home. He's all depressed and dejected and, and all of that. And so he pulls over the side of the road to pray, and he says, Lord, I give up. And the Lord says, you don't have to give up. He says, give the business to me. And I'll make it succeed. He said, well, Lord, if you make, you got it. Here it is. If you make it succeed, I'll try to make sure you always get the glory. And I don't take the credit uh, for what happens. Well, the Lord really did prosper this business. And so much so that over the years, this man from the profits of the business was able to give the Lord over $100 million. <laughs> so it was, it was just this incredible uh, turnaround. But at a certain point in his career, this man realized his number one job was not running the business. His number one job was to be a soul winner, and his number two job was the business. So he began to share Christ with everyone. He handed out tracts, and he, he would personally uh, share the Lord with anybody that he could. He funded crusades. He preached at crusades. And near the end of his life, he estimated that uh, at least 20,000 people had come to the Lord through these different activities. But early in his soul-winning adventures, the Lord gave him a verse from Psalm 2. It says, Ask, and I'll give you the heathen, says in the King James, meaning the unsaved. Ask, and I'll give you the unsaved, for your inheritance. The Lord says, ask. So he asked. God began giving him all these souls. So I put the book down. I asked. I said, Lord, you know. Well, just then the phone rang, and it's a customer of mine. I don't think he knows the Lord. And he was... Just tell me all the terrible things he'd been through in the last few months, some really difficult things. And uh, then he said two things. He said, I believe everything happens for a purpose, and I'm not an atheist. And then he said, I'd like to spend the day with you. So I'm thinking, you know, okay, right? This is how it starts. And as Pastor Brian was sharing earlier, God sometimes answered prayers really quickly. But the point is the Holy Spirit is the soul winner. He speaks in advance to that person that you're later going to share the gospel with. Holy Spirit's a soul winner. We're just the helpers. And we start out being a helper when we tell them that we want in on this program. We want to be part of this. We want uh, unsafe for our inheritance. We, you know, and really, that just puts us on the same page with God. We've got the same agenda he's got. He has these people he loves who he created, and he wants to see them come out of the kingdom of darkness into 
uh, the kingdom of light. And, and so that's what we're going to talk about right now is that, you know, you might be here today and we've talked about being saved and being forgiven and going to heaven and you're going, yeah, okay, you know, I'm not sure, whatever. But the bottom line is if you have not surrendered to Christ and received this forgiveness, then really here's a question for you to ponder. And that's simply, if you were to die today, what would happen to you? Where would you end up in eternity? And the scripture is clear that apart from Christ, if we haven't surrendered to Christ and come into relationship with Christ, then we step into eternity and we will spend eternity in torment, separated from God in a place called hell. Of course, this is not, uh, not God's desire for you. It's just his justice. If you refuse his love, then you're, you're stuck with his justice. But And I would suggest to you, and I know this from my own experience before coming to the Lord, that if you're not yet saved, you're afraid of death. You're really afraid to die. I know I was. Because you know on some level God has revealed to you that when you leave this earth, you're facing judgment. And you know that. And so you don't want to die. It's just, it's a big deal. But anyway, God doesn't want that kind of future for you. He really has a much better uh, plan uh, for you. And I'm going to take you through a couple of scriptures to explain it. Romans 3.23, all have sinned. Every single one of us fallen short of God's standard, his, his glory. Uh, we've all broken God's law and we deserve punishment because of that. And, and apart from Jesus, that's our future. It's bleak. Uh, Romans 6.23 is kind of a good news, bad news scripture. The first part's the bad news. It says, wages of sin is death. In other words, what you or I get in return for our sin is eternal death, meaning eternal separation from God, eternal punishment. That's the bad news. The, the good news is the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So while we deserve punishment, when we surrender to Christ, our sin is forgiven because of what Christ has done at the cross, and uh, we receive the gift of eternal life. But think about this, a gift, right? Somebody gives you a gift, the whole idea of a gift is it, it, you don't have to give it back, right? So let's say you make this decision. You, you surrender to Christ. You receive forgiveness. You get this gift of eternal life, and then you blow it. You sin. Does that mean he's going to take it back? No, it's a gift. It's yours. He's not going to take it back. So you surrender to Christ. You get eternal life. It's your gift to keep. Now, you might look at your life and go, well, I'm not really clean enough to come to God. Well, the fact is none of us are. Uh, and that's the, really the wrong priority of things. First come to God, and then he'll do the cleanup. He's a gentle master. He'll, he'll take care of all those things in your life. I know my life, there's a lot of women and pornography and weird stuff, and God cleaned that up, right? He took care of that. I didn't do that. He took care of it after conversion. Romans 5.8 says this, God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So what motivated Jesus to go to the cross was he loves you and he wants to deliver you out of judgment. He wants you in his kingdom. He wants you in heaven. He wants you forgiven. I led a very wicked life. God forgave everything. He'll do the same for you if you ask him. Finally, final scripture, Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, meaning you make him master. You say, you're in charge now, Jesus, right? Um, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. You will be saved. There's no ifs, ands, or buts in God's program. It's an absolute promise of God. You bow to him, you will be saved. So we're going to pray in a moment. I'm going to ask the worship team not to come up yet. I'll invite you up in a minute. But 
Uh, we're going to pray in a moment. And uh, while everybody's heads bowed, everything, uh, if you want Christ, I'm going to give you that opportunity to respond. So let's bow our heads now. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that you're good. We thank you for your word. And we thank you for your cross. Your blood was shed. You died a horrible death because you love your people. And uh, I pray for any hearts here today, Lord, anyone who's not yet bowed the knee to you, Lord, I pray they would respond to you, receive your love, receive your forgiveness. And so if you're here today and uh, you have never asked Jesus to forgive you, you've never uh, bowed the knee to him, or maybe you have and you've, you've turned the other way and it's time to come back, but if that's you and you want to be forgiven... If you want to know for sure you're going to heaven, I would ask you to stand up right now. I'm going to pray for you. With everybody's head bowed, eyes closed, I'm going to ask you to stand up if you want Jesus, if you want to be forgiven. And I think what we're going to do right now is we're all going to pray what's known as a sinner's prayer. And uh, anybody that's not standing up, you can join in and pray this. And it's not crucial whether you stood up or didn't stand up. This is going to be about you and the Lord. This is your decision to walk with him and follow him. So what we're going to do, everybody can be seated. What we're going to do is just uh, pray this all together. Uh, and I'm just going to have you repeat after me. Father in heaven, thank you that you love me. I admit I'm a sinner. And I thank you for your grace. I thank you for Jesus' sacrifice at the cross. I thank you that I'm clean and forgiven. And I'd ask that you'd uh, lead me and guide me and bless me and protect me every day of my life. I make you part of everything. I invite you into my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Worship team can come now. This has been a presentation of Valley Metro Church. To hear more messages or to support future podcasts, please visit valleymetrochurch.com.